The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Spurs have themselves a Super Sunday in the North London Derby. Elsewhere, it's a first win of the season for Everton, a victory for Villa at Chelsea, and at Bramall Lane, Newcastle 8-0, like Tonali in that Weatherspoons. We ask, did Chelsea take Poch's lemons analogy a little too literally? And should Sheffield United get the referees to tell them how to play again? That and much, much more in this Totally Football Show. It's Sunday the 24th of September. Listener, thank you so much for joining us on the Totally Football Show. We've got fresh back from the North London Derby, Charlie Eccleshare. Hello, Charlie. Hello, James. Also here, Adrian Clark. Hello. All right, you two were there for rival podcasts. Adrian, uh, you'll be doing uh, Handbrake Off mm-hmm. on Monday on the game, and while Charlie, you were representing View from the Lane. So Very much so. Yeah. Tension simmering here in the studio. <laughs> Daniel Story was also there, and as the neutral, I imagine enjoyed it probably more than the other two. I think, and my memory is terrible, but I think it was the best game I've seen since the beginning of last season. Woo! It was, yeah, it was absolutely everything we wanted out of the first Postacoglu North London derby, I think. Excellent. Uh, very, very good. That was quite a game, and it was followed by something pretty extraordinary in its own right at Bramwell Lane that uh, Sheffield United nil, Newcastle 8. Beyond our obvious chagrin that they didn't go for double figures, uh, any quick thoughts on this before we get on to what happened well, around the league this weekend? Well, I was on a very, very oversubscribed train back from London to the safe bosom of the East Midlands, and I was watching the Sheffield United Newcastle game on my phone. It's one of those things where you kind of just want to stand up and say, "Is anyone else watching this?" Like. I know you were having a terrible time on East Midlands trains, but you could be saved by watching this game. Uh, I think I was the only one. It's a it's a weird these sorts of games because the value of each goal starts to become so much less as, as it goes on. And, and early on, you're like, "Whoa, Newcastle! This is quite an impressive return to form for them." And almost by scoring more, it becomes less about Cheap, them. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of. And it's more about, "Oh God, what has happened to Sheffield United?" Who, by the way, yeah. In the 97th minute away at Spurs a week ago, I think they're about to put off a really impressive win. Good for them. I wonder what they can do this season. And then 110 minutes later or whatever, 10 goals against, done for. In the first 20 minutes, they could have had a couple of goals themselves. Sheffield United, they, they were very much in the game. And it swung on a goal that I think should have been disallowed. The, the opener for Newcastle, he keeps the ball in play. I think it was Anthony Gordon, but it hits his hand. And he he basically controls the ball with his hand. They've ignored it on on VAR, and and it stood and it's effectively opened the floodgates, hasn't it? So you wonder what a sliding doors wonder, moment. You wonder. You wonder. <laughs> they won eight nil. Yeah. I'm not sure if we can really say it swung on that. Goal. It could have been five. It could have been five nil. We're not right. for that. Isn't yeah, that yeah, mad to yeah, think? Yeah, but yeah, it's um, it's a bad bad day. For, for Paul Heckingbottom, well, obviously, indeed. but mm. not least because the rumour mill has, has been, you know, whispering ever louder by the day this week that that Chris Wilder's in the mix to replace him. Mm. I mean, if ever there was a, a trigger point, it might be an 8-0 loss. You'd think so, yeah. Fans streaming out of Bramall Lane early on in that second half, and it does look like Heckingbottom might also be set for an early exit. Chris Wilder, the man who took them to ninth in that remarkable mm. season. What was that, 1920? Yeah. Before being replaced himself uh, with Sheffield United back on the bottom of the table uh, the following season by Paul Heckenbottom. Yeah. Yeah, how the wheel turns, eh? 
Anyway, let's get a quick check on the scores around the Premier League on match day six and then get on to matches. Saturday, Man City felled Forest 2-0 despite Rodri's red at the start of the second half. Man United at Burnley were 1-0, checks notes, winners. Uh, Everton got their first win, 3-1 at Brentford, and Luton got their first point in a 1-1 draw with the similarly 10-man Wolves. It was 0-0 for Palace and Fulham. Sunday, 2-2 in the North London derby. Elsewhere, Liverpool beat West Ham 3-1 to stay two points behind City. Brighton did Bournemouth by the same scoreline. They go third now. Aston Villa won 1-0 at Chelsea and Newcastle put the Blades to the sword 8-0. The first time in Premier League history that a team has had eight different scorers in a match. Although, Duncan Alexander points out, 1989, Liverpool 9, Palace 0. That also featured eight different scorers. Anyway, let's begin with that North London derby. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And Jorginho has lost it to Madison. And Madison can drive. And Son is in! 2-2 in no time! No time at all! Classic Drury, classic derby Sunday afternoon. For the happy viewers of the uh, Arsenal 2, Tottenham Hotspur 2, spectacular. Charlie Exher, first off, chapeau to you, because uh, you predicted the scoreline and the turn of events pretty much precisely before kickoff. I did, yeah. I predicted 2-2 two, two and Spurs coming from behind. Mm. It's. I, I saw him delete 180 <laughs> different combinations of that tweet, though. <laughs> yeah, hedge my bets. Uh, no, I, I mean, it's a high-scoring fixture, and it's a fixture where... Going ahead often means less than in other games because teams often come back. Peter Drury in commentary saying that in no other Premier League fixture does the opening goal count for less. There you go. And yeah, I thought it would be tight. You know, you've got one team who have kind of shown what they're all about over a longer period of time and, you know, have improved so much and came second last year against a team that uh, maybe trying to do something similar you know mm. build up from a fairly low base both play really good attacking football I wondered as well if Arsenal having played in Europe midweek might have an effect and they were missing a few players and in the end I think Spurs they certainly deserved a point I think draw was probably the fair fair result really I don't think either team can say that they should have won the game and actually I, d- I do wonder if um, were it not for all the baggage of not having won there in the league since 2010, whether Spurs might have gone for it a little bit more. Because you could feel the deflation at the stadium having just gone ahead to mm. then gift. You know, it really was a gift of a second equaliser a minute after. And Arteta spoke about it afterwards, actually. He said that he felt emotionally the team kind of struggled initially to mm. pick themselves back up. I think they were then able to wrestle control back. Um but yeah, you know, it's, it's a very good point for Spurs. But yeah, I do wonder if they, they could have pushed for it a bit more towards the end. Let's put a bit of a chronology together. Arsenal coming into this game fresh from that magnificent performance midweek when they looked very, very comfortable against PSV uh, in the Champions League. Getting off to a brilliant start against Spurs, who of course not only have a terrible record against Arsenal away, but also were without Harry Kane, the talismanic man. It is Arsenal who took the lead, Adrian. With Bakaya Saka's shot deflected into uh, past Vigario by um, Christian Romero, and then have the chance to go 2 0 up when Gabriel Jesus robs Madison. That was the key moment in the game, wasn't it? I think Arsenal for the first 25, 30 minutes were pretty good. One possession back inside the Spurs half on numerous occasions. Credit to Postacoglu's players for sticking with it because. 
they gave it away so so many times and, and Arsenal got themselves in. Jesus needs to just pass that into the corner. He's done the hard bit winning the ball back and he's just got to calm himself down and, and play the play the easy shot. It wasn't a difficult effort. I think if he goes for the precise finish, he scores it nine times out of ten. Instead, he tried to just blast it and, and that was that was the game's pivotal moment. Um, Spurs then came back into it because Arsenal ran out of gas in the first half. Is that what happened? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, first half now, they put a lot of effort into it. They then backed off and suddenly, lo and behold, Spurs began to play through them and, and, and create chances. We saw a remarkable save from David Rea, which oh. perhaps mm. illuminates a little bit about why Arteta's gone with him. Yeah, and I, and I think, Adrian, that there were two sides to that because I do think Arsenal ran out of steam. I also think, as you say, they were very brave Spurs to keep doing what they had been doing because up until that point, they were a goal down. Jesus had just robbed Madison in his own area. And it wasn't the first time, as you say, they'd lost the ball. And then they had a choice at that point. Do they change it up? Do they play more direct or do they keep what they're doing and trust the process to use, ironically, Arteta's sort of maxim? Um, and they did the latter. They kept doing the same thing. And then the 10 minutes after giving Jesus that chance and then equalising, they had loads of the ball. They beat the press, had that chance that you mentioned that Raya saved and really sort of changed the momentum in a really impressive way. And I think Jesus, that kind of encapsulates him. He's, I think Guardiola said he's the best pressing forward in the world, as he showed there, and he does everything so well, but he's not a clinical finisher. His finishing is fairly average. And as Adrian says, with a bit of composure, he scores that one. What about Sun's finish then on the, the chance that Madison had managed to create for him to, to equalise, Daniel? Yeah, I, I think basically it comes down to, to those two moments and an and Arsenal striker panicked or got excited in that moment and both Son and Madison in their own two-on-one having robbed the ball and slightly ironically it was Madison who got robbed of the ball. He played that perfectly. He drew the man, he played it over. Son, very tidy finish. I just thought Spurs were, were magnificent in the aftermath of both goals and that's probably the biggest difference between last season and this. I think it's very easy to fit the narrative but if... You watch Spurs last season when something bad happened to them when he had Antonio Conte. It seemed to kind of, it's almost as if everyone thought, well, this is de this is fated against us. This was always going to happen. What what chance have we got? Whereas under Postacoglu, they seem to think, yeah, we've made a mistake. Now let's rectify that. Let's seize back control of the game. And that's exactly what they did. All right. Uh, Destiny, not very much on Spurs' side in a quite literal uh, sense. Uh, after the game, James Madison may be referencing the shift in mentality and certainly of perception. He says, neutrals talk about Tottenham. They often say soft, weak, bottle it, spursy, all that rubbish. I think the last couple of weeks shows we might be going in a slightly different direction. It looked like they did. I, I was incredibly impressed by Tottenham Hotspur. It's not easy for me to say that. Um, but they, they were great. I thought they were superb in the game. After that initial 25-minute barrage fr from the Gunners, what I liked most about them was their fight and their aggression. They really got stuck into Arsenal. I thought that Basuma was great. The central defenders, excellent. Doggy's duel with, with Saka was absorbing. I thought they, they probably came out even Stevens in the end, but two really good players going at it. And their aggression undoubtedly knocked Arsenal out of their stride. The passing from, from Arteta's side was just not the fluid, cohesive passing that we've grown accustomed and I think Postacoglu deserves an enormous amount of credit for getting his players to execute that game plan it it disrupted Arsenal completely I think the other thing to say is that 
I think Son, Kulisewski, Saar and Romero are the only players in that Tottenham eleven who had started a North London yeah. derby before. And obviously it was Postacoglu's first as well. Is that the an advantage, danger- do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that, <laughs> it, it proved it, but I think the danger of having a system that's really working, that's exciting and attacking uh, and relentless in a press, particularly when you go behind, is that when something goes wrong, it's very easy to say, okay, we need to kind of shift, we need a second gear. Because if we lose this game 2-0 or 3-0, suddenly everyone says, well, the football's great, but you haven't got a second gear and other teams worked that out. But they didn't. Their relentlessness to carry on doing what they were doing with a very, very inexperienced team. Mm. You know, you, you look at the wide players, Johnson and Kulisewski are young. The central midfield was absolutely fantastic. Yves Basuma is has been the best central midfielder in the Premier League so far this season. Uh, he did it again today. The number of times that him and Saar were faced with two Arsenal players and turned out of trouble and therefore found the pass to the man who was free. I think it was seven or eight times in the second half alone. And and that's how that system works. Because if, if you get caught once or twice and it turns over a chance, then everyone does start doubting it. But they didn't. They just they kind of reinforced to go again. And I thought Vasum was the man of the match by a distance. Okay. Oh, there's so much to take from this game. Could we talk a little bit about the Madison Sun bromance, which is blossoming <laughs> there? Not just Madison robbing Jorginho, who's substitution of Rice is, I think, probably another of the game's big yeah. turning points. But also the incredible work that Madison did and the incredible finish that that uh, Min Son then provided for Spurs' first equaliser. Yeah, they've linked up really, really well. And obviously with Kane going and Kane and Son being the Premier League's best ever duo in terms of setting each other up for goals, um, that was something Madison had to fill the void, I suppose. And he's done it incredibly well. And... Yeah, the weight of pass for the second one as well. He just draws the. It's not you see that messed up so much more than it should be when you're two on one and you you need to get the timing right and then the weight of pass. That was great. And yeah, the the first equaliser, he does brilliantly, Madison, to wriggle away from Saka. And I do wonder as well if Saka doesn't bring him down because it would have given him the free kick that Madison's also so dangerous from. You know, from that left side of the box, he can whip one in like he did against Brentford, which led their equaliser in that game. Yeah, I mean, they were both great. I would just say I agree with Daniel on Basuma. And there, there was an instance in the 95th minute that I noted where he drops the shoulder and moves away from two Arsenal players. And you just think, that's what you've got to do to win game, to, you know, to get good results at these places. You have to be brave. You have to be bold. You can't just keep giving, you know, turning over possession. And that's what they did. And Udogi got booked after about a quarter of an hour. A minute later, he gives Nketiah a chance. He's 20 years old. His first North London derby. And you think... This could get away from him. I actually did it because I do think he's been so good so far this season. But I know from what I'm told in commentary, there was a bit of a, you know, get him off almost at half time. By the end, he was, Postacoglu said he thought he had the better of that flank. You know, he's up against Bukayo Saka, one of the hardest wingers to play against in the whole league. In commentary, there was a lot of talk about how Spurs were hard, harshly treated on, on the, the penalty with which Arsenal took the lead. The second time, Adrian, I, I completely agree with the face you're making. A player with his arm outstretched blocks a goal-bound shot. It, it's it, always it, been a penalty. This the, is what handball yeah. inside the box is. That's what it looks like. That's right. what a penalty looks like. Player with hand in the air stops shot going in. That's that's a definite penalty. It's no, it, there is no doubt about that. There was a lot of begrudging. Well, in the current climate, by the rules, but yeah, for me, <laughs> it's, it's because, it's because a... probably because of what happened at Luton yesterday. We'll get we'll we'll get to that as well mm. on Saturday, rather. Um, yeah, I, I thought that Spurs. Um, going back to the point I was making before about them sort of disrupting the flow, I've got a good stat for you, and this, this is really interesting in light of what Daniel said about how much he enjoyed the game 
and and how it's one of the best games he's seen for a long, long time. The ball was in play for 52 of the 104 minutes. Really? That is 50.4% of the game, Mm. which is the second lowest figure in the Premier League this season behind Newcastle versus Brentford. Tottenham, with their aggressive stance, and and Arsenal to a degree because they made some fouls too, this was stop-start. And the stop-start game was always going to go against Arsenal. So again, look, I tip my hat to Tottenham for, for making it that kind of game. And they also have more of the ball. They're, yeah. they, they had more possession than Arsenal at the Emirates. They're, in the first half, they had 60% of the ball. And they made 373, completed 373 passes to Arsenal's 313. Last season, Spurs had 35% of the ball. Um, didn't get over the halfway line. And basically didn't get over the halfway line and made 240 passes. Admi- you know, admittedly, they had 10 men for half an hour of that game. But even so, I mean, the difference in the space of a season is is quite incredible. And, and you know, I think it's... Obviously, I've seen all of Spurs' games this season and the one thing that anyone said going into this game was, OK, they've been good, but, you know, United at home, maybe, but they've had a softish fixture list. Mm. To do... That's what I mean about doing it at these grounds. They've done it away against the team who came second last season, who, you know, it's been such a bad place for them to come. And I think that, again, with... I said this on Thursday, that going into it, so few of the players will have played a North London derby, but that, that might be an advantage because how great is the experience of having lost lots of these right. games? Um, and I think that showed. And, that, and there is a kind of, um, I don't know, just an absence of that baggage for a lot of these Spurs players. And what Postacoglu said as well is what's been great about that is when you bring lots of new people in, they can look around and be like, what's the problem? This is great. You know, we've got a great stadium, we've got a great training ground and we've got lots of good players. And I think you can lose sight of that when you've been at a place for a long time and had lots of heartache. Mm. We also, we talk about environment um, for players and the cliche is kind of player X is like a new signing because they've come back from injury. But actually what Postacoglu's done by changing that environment is he's got players who are completely on a a blank canvas. Yves Basuma is a perfect example. He's not a better player than he was last season and he wasn't a worse player last season than he was when they signed him from Brighton. It's just that at Brighton in the season before he left and this season, he's in a system and surrounded by an environment in which he feels that, not that he can't make mistakes because mistakes will happen, but that when he makes those mistakes, as long as it's part of the right process, as long as you're making a mistake of, um, you know, a technique mistake rather than a, a decision mistake, then Postcoglu will back you because you're doing what he wants and if you get that right more often than you don't you'll look really good in central midfield mm. unlike Jorginho so just returning briefly to that agent because how disappointing was that Arsenal had just gone 2-1 up after the second penalty and then what 23 seconds later Jorginho has a bit of a daydream on the ball and through comes Madison and it's the most experienced player on the pitch you know someone who's played whose literal so job is just yeah. keep the ball that's just what get he it, does. give it and, and yeah he gets caught out I, I do think that that Rice having to come off at half time was a was a bit of a game changer was um, that, that was injury related yeah, yeah apparently he's got a bad back he was feeling feeling discomfort so they didn't want to take a chance um Jorginho is the third choice in that position, remember, because Thomas Partey is also out injured. So you've got two two really key midfielders there that are absent in that second half. Martinelli and Trossard, numbers one and two on the left flank. So again, Arsenal were a little bit unbalanced having to put Gabriel Jesus out there. The one, the one thing I was slightly disappointed with from Mikel Arteta was, was when he changed... Gabriel Jesus, he took him off. And I personally, I would have taken Eddie Nketiah off and put Gabriel Jesus down the middle because I think he he looked the most likely 
to make something happen in in that second period. And I mean, I think Adrian such was the disparity. I can't believe Jesus wasn't injured or still or not not injured necessarily, but he's been out for a while. Mm. I just think he must not have been able to do ninety because watching yeah. that, there's no way if they're both able to do it, you keep mm. Nketiah on and take Jesus off. No the ele- way. The elephant in the room here. The elephant in the room with Arsenal is that. Uh, Walking out of the stadium, they were saying, "Well, the problem is, is that we've got no attacking players on the bench because we had to bring on Reese Nelson and Eddie and Katia had to start." But they had a sixty-five million pound substitute that they brought on, and that is now really turning because there was that one have a shot where he was sort of—it was a difficult chance, but he was twenty yards out uh, on his left foot with a kind of bouncing ball, and he kind of skies it over the bar, and you could just feel the stadium deflate at. That because every time you watch Arsenal at the moment, when Havertz starts and does something good, everyone's cheering. They want him to play well. They want to give him confidence. They know how that works. And if you're in a situation where you're you're leaving a 65 million pound signing on the bench in favour of Nketiah, and then you're bringing on Reese Nelson, and it's him that's doing the driving runs, not Havertz. That is a little bit of a worry. It is, though. I think, as Adrian says, it's difficult, isn't it, with injuries and how much to talk about their importance but that that is I'm sure there'll be people listening saying they were missing a load of players and, and Havertz he I don't think he's considered in those kind of wide forward roles and I can kind of understand that yeah. you know he, that isn't really him and you know he's basically him and Vieira rotating so those injuries might be a bit of a red herring um, though obviously he could have played up front you know he has played more there but I think that's more of a that that's a bigger shift to make at the last minute than and you know, Nketiah and Jesus are, are much more similar centre forwards. Mm. Well, you can get more thoughts about the North London derby from Adrian and Charlie in the Spurs and Arsenal podcast. That's Handbrake Off and View from the Lane. Adrian, you're, that'll be out for when? Tuesday? No, it'll be out on Monday, uh, Monday afternoon. Monday. Yeah, we're recording it in the morning. So, yeah, I think, yeah. There'll be a little bit of frustration in the air. I can imagine. Mm. Yeah. What, what about you, Charlie? Similar timings for us. Right. Recording tomorrow morning should be out tomorrow afternoon, but different mood. Yeah. Uh, and actually, one other thought, one other additional thought. Mm. Uh, should say as well, on the injuries front, Spurs also had, you know, they lost Brennan Johnson to an injury, and I think that will rule them out for a bit, was what Postacoglu said after. And Madison went off with, uh, I think, you know, nothing serious, but... Postacoglu said he hadn't been 100%. Well, he um, jarred his knee badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think as well that may have contributed, you know, I was saying earlier, I thought, could they have gone for the win? In fairness, you know. When he and Sam went off, it did rather look like yeah, that exactly. was that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, very good. Spurs have a huge game coming up next weekend. They're going to be taking on Liverpool, who are two points ahead of them and Arsenal. Of course, top of the table are Manchester City, who on Saturday... Beat Nottingham Forest 2-0, a club record equaling six wins out of six now to start this season for Pep's side. But a potentially damaging afternoon, this one, because it featured the first red card of Rodri's career. It was a straight red card as well. He's going to miss the next three games for Manchester City. Those three games are Newcastle away in the Canterbury Cup this midweek and then Wolves away and Arsenal away. Mm, Bonus. Yeah, look... Rodri is the best player in the world in this position, but he has also been the most fortunate player in regards to avoiding yellow cards or two yellow cards. I I do have some numbers that show that the karmic gods have finally caught up with him. Since the start of last season, Rodri has made 59 fouls and picked up seven yellow cards. That's 8.4 fouls per yellow card. I don't think there's another player out there in the Premier League that has 
is fouling that often, right. picking up so well, so few yellow cards. He, he he gets away with murder. I think maybe it was Daniel who said this in the past, that that's what makes him the best in the world at his position, his ability to make those kind of interventions without getting sanctioned for it. Yeah, he's, he's a master I do think, he, yeah, it does look like mind control sometimes. <laughs> and I'm, I, I, I must say, in, like, just to back up Adrian's point, I did, when I heard, I just, you know, was following, I just checked the score of my scores on my phone or whatever, so it had been sent off. I did genuinely think, what must he have done? Yeah. For Ro- genuinely, for Rodri to because he's a mate, he does this thing where he goes sort of, yeah. and I appreciate this is not great for audio, but he kind of taps his chest and looks at the ref like, come on, you know, come on, you know, we're, we're all friends here. And the ref, that seems to convince the refs, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, no, I won't book you. And somehow it didn't work. Though I gather there was a, a lengthy VAR check. Yeah. You know, to it try was and, a fairly to try and find some, card. Yeah, there wasn't too He had his hands around the neck of the player. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a definite. How much of an issue is that for City with the squad they've got? Well, we're about to find out if Calvin Phillips still has a future there, I think. Um, it was he that was brought on on Saturday, but then Mateo Kovacic is not quite fully fit yet. Uh, Guardiola said last week that he's, he's pretty close. Um, and there is an option to play Kovacic. Obviously, Mateus Nunes played central midfield as well on Saturday. So there's an option to play Kovacic and Nunes as a pair. If, if Phillips doesn't start in the next two league games, then he should leave in January because Rodri doesn't miss many games for the for the re- well partly for the reasons that Adrian and Charlie just mentioned. So well, if he Stone's is going to come back three, in now, what about well, Stone? he's also not fit. No, yeah. so um, I think the first choice combination is that back three and then Stones with Rodri. But if neither of them are there and Phillips doesn't start, mm. yeah, he's probably going to have to move on. All right. There is that amazing set. Since Rodri joined the Premier League, he's made more Premier League appearances than anyone else by quite a margin as well, right. I think. Which, given that he plays for Pep Guardiola, as you say, is yeah. mind-blowing. All right, on next to the other things that took place lunchtime Sunday. Hi, everyone. David Ornstein here. And I want to tell you about The Athletic's new bite-sized podcast, The Daily Football Briefing. If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular length podcast in the morning, this is right up your street. In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football, all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally.
We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. This is The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Bill Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Three other games, two o'clock on Sunday, featuring the Thursday Night Club, as the Athletic uh, wittily dubbed the Europa and Europa Conference League sides, of whom uh, Liverpool beat West Ham 3-1, Mo Salah winning and then converting a penalty. He's now either scored or assisted in the last 12 Premier League games in a row. Bowen, Nunes and Jota also on the score sheet there. Brighton were 3-1 winners against Bournemouth, a brace there from Mittomar. Seagulls now with three league wins in a row, bouncing back from their own Europa League disappointment on Thursday at home to AK Athens. While Aston Villa, who got beaten by Legia Warsaw in the Conference League on Thursday night, that was away, they went to Chelsea and won 1-0. At that game at Stamford Bridge was the Athletics' Villa correspondent, Jacob Tanswell, who joins us now. Hello, Jacob. Hi, how are you doing? Very, very well. Where, where are you? You're sat outside Stamford Bridge at the moment. Yeah, I'm just uh, in front of the tunnel. Uh, very quiet Stamford Bridge. Uh, quite deflated Stamford Bridge too. Mm. Well, it was Villa who did the deflating, who let the air out. A lovely way for them to bounce back from their own disappointment Thursday in Warsaw. What did you see then in this 1-0 victory for the villains? Yeah, Emery spoke about Europe being completely different to the Premier League and you shouldn't take the disappointment from Thursday into the game today. I think what you saw with Villa is a much more coherent defensive structure. You look at the statistics afterwards and Villa got Chelsea offside, caught Chelsea offside 10 times. Um, And I think that's a good indicator of uh, Emery's high line. He likes to play this really risky high line. He never steps back. He never lets it drop deeper, even when it should do. And especially against this you know, pace of, of Chelsea, however dysfunctional they may be, it was always going to be a risk. But they they improved, they made sure they caught Chelsea offside and going the other way uh, when they were down to 10 men. Chelsea, Villa capitalised and Ollie Watkins found his clinical edge. Excellent. His first goal of the season, Villa moving up to sixth place. What, what kind of season uh, do you think we should expect from this Villa side under Emery? It's difficult to say. Villa... Emery said at the start of the, of the season that he thinks Villa should be aiming to crack the top seven because he considers Newcastle to be one of the top seven. And if they can do that, that's going to be a great achievement. But I think the key for Villa right now is to go deep into European competitions. They want to compete at all fronts. And that's why they rotate on Thursday night. But for Villa, they need to have more of these statement wins. If Stamford Bridge is still a statement win at this time, uh, they need to go to these places and they need to win these games because they've been to St. James and then Anfield and got turned over. So they need to make sure they can go 
keep competing with the big boys. And if they can crack the top seven, then that's a huge, huge season for Aston Villa. A lot of Chelsea commentators uh, post-game pointing to Malagusta's red card as being a turning point in the game. Do you think that's fair or do you think Villa always had the edge in this anyway? It was, it was well balanced. I think Chelsea started very well. They were very bright, uh, quick out the blocks in the first 15 minutes. But you just got the feeling that Villa was starting to work their way into it. They uh, they were quite solid at the back, but then had a few chances going forward. Zaniolo, Lucas Digne, they were, they were strong. Uh, yeah, it was quite even to that point. Uh, obviously, with the numerical advantage, Villa actually had more of the ball. Chelsea couldn't press as much. They had to be restricted, basically counter-attacking opportunities. And when Villa have got the likes of Zaniolo and McGinn, these number 10s are getting between the lines. They can slowly grind teams down and they can make that numerical advantage count. And Caicedo went to right back and it all just started to look, look a little bit messy for Chelsea. The atmosphere turned a little bit silent and Villa got you know good control of the game after it being quite in the balance. But Zaniola had a spectacular effort, which which didn't quite come up for him. But how how has he been? Would you say he's been really really impressive? He's he's starting games early than I, I anticipated. I thought he'd be have more of a you know cameo role for the time being. But Emery trusts him in these type of games. His work rate's good. He's sharp. You know, you saw the other day against Legia. He, he was he set up Duransko of a thunderous strike. He's he's getting into really good positions and John McGinn and him are Emery's number 10s. Emery always wants two number 10s in the team to, to bounce off Musa Diaby and Ollie Watkins and Zaniolo, Monchi knows them very well uh, from their time at Roma. They know what they're getting and, and Zaniolo's adapted probably quicker than I thought he would in England. Mm, excellent. All right, Villa have Brighton next weekend. It'll be an interesting game. Uh, just one last thing, Jacob, you described Chelsea as dysfunctional. Having just seen them, what sense can you make of their extraordinary trajectory from European champions to currently 14th in the Premier League? They look a little bit lost, don't they? There's not really a plan. They've got a lot of young talent, but they haven't got really anything to bind them together. And you can see, you can sense the atmosphere, you can sense the nerves in and around the ground. And they're a team that have, have got good talent, but they miss a lot of chances today. Defensively, they, they look quite naive. It just feels like they're, they're muddling around and they're not quite sure of their direction. Jacob Tanswell. Hmm. We had uh, Michael Cox, the erudite zonal marking in on Thursday explaining to us how Chelsea are actually not playing that bad and that it was all going to happen for them soon but lo and behold beaten 1-0 at home second home defeat in a row because of course Forrest did it last time didn't they Daniel? They did and yeah and they, they, do, they do exactly look lost and it's really hard to, to work out now because Gusto will be banned for a bit I think Jackson picked up his fifth yellow card yeah, he so did. he's going to get a ban as well and yeah, there's just there's just no good news at all. Uh, and I know Pochettino is a this kind of club builder, and he knew it was bad. But right. it, it does feel like a series of Chelsea managers have gone in and gone. Oh no, you said it was bad, but I didn't know it was this bad. You, and you, it is this bad. Were you surprised when he chose to describe his own players as lemons in the uh, pre-game build-up? It did feel a little bit Canton Seagulls trawler, didn't it? Um, in kind of you know a, a very simple point made incredibly obfuscated by some really weird terminology. And right. Pochettino cannot blame his English as Cantona sort of half mm. tried to. But an, unfo- an unfortunate um, analogy or an unfortunate comparison for a group of players who are now off to the worst start this club has had to a top-flight season since 1978. Five goals this season. Only Burnley and Lutner have scored fewer and they've played a game less as well. 
It does feel like in 20 years' time there'll be a Chelsea fanzine called What is a Lime? And everyone will go, well, what was that about? <laughs> Adam Crafton points out that Chelsea's next nine fixtures include the following games. Arsenal, Spurs, Man City, Man United, Brighton, Newcastle, plus two West London derbies against Fulham and Brentford. And how many are they going to blank in, in terms of not scoring a goal in those games? You'd hazard, I guess, at quite a few. That's 13 Premier League matches this calendar year that Chelsea have failed to score in. I mean, that is is really I mean, bad. Aren't they the lowest scoring team in the Premier League this calendar year of all of those that have played five games in both, in, in both seasons? No, no, across oh, sorry, last yeah. season mm. as well. Mm. I saw I saw someone saying this earlier today. Mm. I mean, that is incredible. I mean, even last season as a whole, they got thirty eight goals. How do you do that? It costs a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, spend <laughs> half a billion or whatever it is. I mean, it's it, the lineup it, though is is so much worse than previous Chelsea sides, isn't it? They are missing a few players, aren't they? Fifteen but, players. Yeah, yeah. It's, wow. it's it's yeah, it's a lot of injuries. There's also some odd decisions. I think uh, Levi Colwell is an, a natural left back. I think he's a good, very good centre back. But with but he ben, was beaten by Watkins for the yeah. For the goal, well, huh? Ben Chilwell it, it was on the bench. Um, so that that's a bit of an odd one. Thiago Silva's having to play a lot of games for. a... 39-year-old, yeah. And they obviously, they don't have anyone else to replace Jackson apart from Armando Breuer, who did make his long-awaited return off the bench. So he might be thrust straight mm. in, I mm. guess, next time. Out. I mean, the only thing I have seen it suggested as well in response to that fixture list, maybe they'll benefit from not playing low-block teams right. against whom they seem completely incapable of breaking down. That might feel like clutching at straws, but... You know, and and that's the thing when you watch them, you keep thinking, like Coxie was saying, they are creating chances and it's maybe not all so awful, but then every time the same thing seems to happen and they just, they can't finish. It's, mm-hmm. It is really, really hard to make sense of. Remarkable. They're going to be facing Brighton midweek in the Carabao Cup. Uh, Brighton, who will then be taking on Villa in the league at the weekend... Daniel, a, a final word on, on Villa before we move on to other things? I agree with Jacob. I've got no idea what to expect. Every time I think they're going to win a game, they do something silly. Um, it is interesting that the great downfall of Steven Gerrard was his use of Philip Coutinho and uh, Emi Buendia, uh, kind of rotating them out, trying to fit them both in the same team. And now Emery's saying, what I'm going to do is try and use these two number 10s behind a striker and see if that works. And if he fails where Gerrard doesn't, they'll be really, really good to watch. But I think there is a danger of them getting a bit caught on the break by that especially I, I like McGuin deeper I have to say I like that energy deeper rather than higher at the pitch Excellent. very impressive as well because Villa lost Mings and Buendia to ACLs which is a huge blow for them um, but yeah I mean I agree with Dan I said our, last time I was on which was four games into the season rather than six I think at that point they'd won two lost two that that felt a little bit where Villa are under Emery that you, yeah you just don't really know obviously they've then they've since won the next two but yeah I wouldn't necessarily think that means they won't then lose a couple because it's it's a Extremely entertaining. Hmm. But uh, yeah, you're not always sure what you're going to get. Uh, okay. Esri Konza, I think should should be in the next England squad, really. I think he's um, good enough. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I had another good game. They've had so many clean sheets, not necessarily of late Villa, but under Emery. And he's he's been in the team most weeks. I think he's a very underrated player. There you go, Adrian. Mm. Lovely yeah. stuff. And next up, let's find out about how Everton got their first win of the season. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Totally Football Show European Edition will be out on Tuesday afternoon. We've got some big games to discuss. There's uh, Atletico against Real, the Madrid derby. That's going on Sunday night as we speak. Le Classique, Paris Saint-Germain against Marseille, also taking place this evening as we record. What an extraordinary build-up to that game from Marseille's point of view. The day before their Europa League fixture, Thursday, their manager, Marcelino, who'd only arrived last summer, left. Basically... The fans had threatened him and the club president with violence if they didn't step down. He said, I can't accept this. I'm going to resign, which to me felt a little bit like what they were looking for in the first place. But anyway, extraordinary for the team. A day before they took on Ajax in the Europa League and uh, four days before they meet PSG in Le Classique. We'll talk about all of that with uh, Julian Arons. We'll also hear about Ajax, who've got problems of their own. I'm not sure if you've seen this, but they're um, languishing down in 14th place in the Eredivisie. Their fans, are they taking it well? Not so much. Sunday, when they went 3-0 down at home to Feyenoord, in that classic fixture, they set about their own stadium. Extraordinary scenes of violence there in Amsterdam. In the Bundesliga, happier times for Bayern Munich, who had a 7-0 win of their own against Bochum. Harry Kane got a hat-trick and two assists. He's now up to seven goals in five, to put that in perspective. That breaks the club records of Gerd Müller, Miroslav Klose and Mario Mandzukic. Just saying. Yeah, we'll have those stories and more in Tuesday's show. Back to the Premier League. Saturday, Everton got their first win of the season. Daniel, how? Well, they played a Brentford team who, I think that's their worst home performance in the Premier League era. I know they lost, I think, early in the first season. They lost at home to Norwich 2-1, but they're a different team now. And I think, speaking to a Brentford fan after the game, and he was kind of saying, I think that us as fans, and probably Thomas Frank as well, need to reassess where we're at this season. Because even Tony's obviously not there and is making some noises about potentially leaving. They've got a new goalkeeper um, they're trying to bring Nathan Collins in and kind of reorganise the defence. Rico Henry is out for the season uh, with an injury. And they do look a bit fragile at the moment. Um, I know they've only lost two games and one of them was at Newcastle to a slightly de- debatable goal. Um, but they just, yeah, they, they look like if a team, if any opposing manager plays Brentford on their merit this season rather than the kind of cursed memory of getting countered by them last season, then you can really get at them. And that's exactly what Sean Dyche did. Everton have got a far better attack than people are giving them credit for because they signed most of them very late in the window. And there's still Jack Harrison to come in as well. And yeah, they looked they were the, by far the better team. Abdullah Decore was fantastic in central midfield when he's at it with his energy. But Everton just seemed to press kind of 15, 20 yards higher at the pitch than they normally do or have done this season. And it makes such a difference because it means that the players, the, the attackers, when they get the ball, they don't have 40 yards ahead of them. They've got 15, 20 yards and they can make things happen. Mm. Decore got the opening goal. James Tarkovsky got the second. And then Dominic Calvert-Lewin got his first of the season off the bench. And uh, some interesting post-game comments from him as well, saying mm. that he'd been booed by his own fans 
uh, when he came off against Aston Villa. And he phrased this, I thought, incredibly diplomatically. <laughs> Did you? I found it quite funny the way he said it. Because he said it with like... It, it was basically, I read it as like a dig at his own fans. Yeah, but, but he positioned he knew... it as kind of faux philosophically like, funny old game, isn't it, football? Because last time out, I was getting abused by my own fans. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what he threw in was, and I know this just means that they care yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I thought was a, a, a nice way to put it. Right? Yeah. Rather than, what was the Father Ted uh, prize winning acceptance speech, that kind of thing. And now we move on to Bastards. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Uh, I mean, because the hmm. thing with Everton, they were, after the first four games, I think it was them and Chelsea who were presented as the teams that aren't playing as badly as you think. Mm. Everton, like Chelsea, the sense being that they had actually created a lot more than they had scored. Their XG wasn't so bad. Then obviously last week against Arsenal, they weren't really like that. They didn't really create a lot. But this was this kind of gave that some weight because this was the performance that supposedly had been coming. Mm. So, yeah, uh, here's some numbers, Adrian. Uh, Everton's shot conversion this season prior to Saturday was 3%. On Saturday, 16% of their shots went in. Yeah, it's more like it, it, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. no, it was a really impressive performance, not least because they were so bad against Arsenal. I know that Arsenal played well at Goodison, but they they just looked so flat, so devoid of, of ideas. But in this match... They had runners from deep. You know, they fed off Beto. The, the big guy up front, I think, has made a, a real difference to mm. them. So, Well, because yeah. it means if Cavaloon isn't there, then it's not an absolute crisis, which yeah. it kind of has been. And he's, his availability, is it unfortunately, hasn't been great because of injury. And it means they, they have someone else on. Mm. Great mm. assist as well from James Garner. I thought he wins the ball and then he plays a really precise... Mm pass through the gap perfectly weighted for Calvert-Lewin and yeah that was that was a good moment was it it was a nice moment for him after all his sort of injury woes mm. and like I can't hear the name James Garner without having that theme tune playing though <laughs> uh, listeners of a certain vintage will know what I mean uh, Daniel we should also say that Everton's next two league games are at home to Luton and at home to Bournemouth Ooh. and suddenly if you win those the way the Premier League is looking now and we'll probably come on to this mm. um, with how the promoted clubs are playing that could mean you're fairly safely ensconced in mid-table unless you go on a really bad run. How about Luton who picked up their first point of the season this weekend in their 1-1 draw at home to Wolves. Wolves who went down to 10 men but went a goal up with a fine goal from uh, Neto of course, Neto, who has scored or assisted five of the six Premier League goals so far this season. Luton then equalising with a penalty that, certainly Adrian, you were referencing a little bit earlier on as, as being controversial. It's a howler. It is a howler. It really is. Why is um, it a penalty? What can he do about it? He's, he's gone what to, could Romero do he's about gone it? To, no, he, no he, that was different. The, the Why is that different? <laughs> it didn't deflect off, off him onto okay. his hand, did it? Okay. So from point blank range, it hits his leg mm. and then it hits his arm. And, mm. and the way he's gone in to make the block is absolutely natural. I, honestly, I just cannot get my head around how anyone can give it. Now, it was a debut for the referee, Josh Smith, I believe. But on VAR, I think he's been let down by John Brooks. He should, uh, he should at least have gone and had a look at it. I would be absolutely fuming if I was Gary O'Neill and I know that he was. I mean, they've been on the wrong end of some a lot of bad decisions. Um, I mean, Gary O'Neill was on the wrong end of a lot of bad decisions as head coach at Bournemouth. Mm. He must feel a little bit cursed and totally fed up with the number of apologies that he's got for, from the referees. For me, this was 
one of the biggest mistakes I've seen for a long, long time for, from the match officials. It was it was never a pen, and and Rob Edwards couldn't keep a straight face really when he was asked about it. It just you know he, he hedged around it, but he basically said, "Yeah, we've we've had stronger appeals and not got them," um, which was a polite way of saying, "Yeah, we were jammy there." All right, Daniel, you're going to disagree. Uh, well, I, I I feel that that shouldn't be a penalty it, oh. in terms of fairness. It, it feels it feels incredibly harsh, but. Again, the laws of the game say that the deflection off your own foot doesn't matter if your hand is in an unnatural position. If, if you're if you're making your if you're putting your hand in an unnatural position as mm. if to block the path of the ball, and the ball happens to hit your hand, whether it deflects or not, you are liable to give away a penalty. Now, I think that is, you know, I think that's a foolish law. I think it's a completely unfair penalty, and I agree with Adrian on that. I don't agree necessarily that. It was a you know a clangor of a decision. I think the law's the clangor there, not the decision. Uh, and the reality is, if it goes to VAR, it's very hard for them to say this doesn't feel like it should be a penalty. Right. Okay. And that that that's what you get, unfortunately, in real time without VAR, just wouldn't be given. I don't think. Uh, the reason it's given is because the referee thinks, well, I can give that and VAR a look at it. But once VAR looks at it, it says, well, I can't change the decision. So I hear you. Let's move on then to Turf Moor, where Man United got a much-needed win, 1-0 against Burnley. The goal, a brilliant pass from Johnny Evans, followed by an outrageous volley from Bruno Fernandes. Evans, this movement from Fernandes, he's made a break from midfield, and on the volley, he hits it! Gorgeous goal! Outstanding technique! Many things from this goal. First of all, Bruno Fernandes, that's extraordinary. Great technique, because it, it, he's had to wait quite a long time for it to come to him it's a, it's a it's a wonderful diagonal but it's it's in the air it's it's coming down from quite some height and to hit it as cleanly as he did on the run is is one of the most difficult skills i would say in in football so no it's it's a stun it's a stunner from from bruno fernandez um yeah great run great pass amazing volley it's like that van persie one uh that he scored for united when rooney chips it over and he volleys it which was actually marginally offside in the VAR era wouldn't have counted. Um, but yeah, both incredible volleys. Yeah, as Adrian says, the technique required is... But how about the ball from Johnny Evans? Johnny Evans? In the Wayne Rooney role. Did, in that. Did Johnny role. Evans say this was one of the greatest nights of his life? Did he say that? Yeah, because I think he's, he reached... Doesn't speak much for his personal life, does No, it? 200, is it his 200th appearance for Manchester United. He said, he, I never thought I would get to that milestone. Right. Obviously, he's played well in the game and he's, mm. he's produced probably the best assist of his career until this point. And there have been plenty. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get it. But, yeah, one of the best nights of his life seems a stretch. Because I didn't think Manchester United were that good right. in the game. I mean, Burnley... They had 30, 37% possession yeah. against a Burnley side in 20th place out of 20 yeah. in the Premier League. In between both boxes, I thought Burnley were, were quite good, actually. They just lack mm. a punch up front. Mm. Lyle Foster was suspended. He's their main striker now. But I've got to say, there's a massive hole in Burnley's recruitment this summer. They've, they've brought so many new players in and a lot of them look very exciting. Kolyosho may be the pick. But how they thought they could get through this Premier League season with Rodriguez and Lyle Foster, I don't know. Because Vincent Cummings is a very smart guy. He's a very mm. clever man. Diligent head coach. For me, there's nowhere near enough firepower at the top end of the pitch to support the good work that goes on 
between both boxes. So I think this is going to be a familiar story, whether they play well but mm. don't score enough. Uh, Man United supporters post-game raving about the performance of Hannibal. Uh, Daniel? Yeah, I, I think to an extent Manchester United supporters are in a kind of mode at the moment where something good happens and they cling on to it. And I completely get that. We've all been there with our clubs where there's a lot going on behind the scenes and on the pitch that is not very easy to like. And therefore, when a young player comes in and just looks like they care and looks like they're prepared to take risks and prepared to dive into a tackle, um, mm. it looks very good. The question is whether he's there when everyone's back. Um, but, you know, he, he is, he's, he's clearly a promising footballer, but we have been here before with Manchester United. He was on loan at Birmingham in the Championship and did OK. Mm. Yeah, no, no, be, no, no better than OK. So, no. you know, it's quite a jump to go from that to being in Manchester United starting eleven. But good luck to him. And he, and he did play pretty well. Can I just ask Adrian, you a question. Obviously, mm. you've, you're very across the EFL. Mm. Are you surprised... By the struggle, the, the three teams that have come up at this, I can't remember a season where the three teams that have come up look mm. such hot favourites to go down at this point. Mm. Um, I know, yeah, I think 97, 98, the only time that all of them, mm. all the promoted teams have gone down. Did you expect that they'd all have these kind of struggles? I thought Burnley would be better because they were so good in the championship. They were like Wolves were in the championship. They were like Leeds mm. were in the championship under Bielsa. They absolutely bossed it but they've changed five or six players in the starting 11. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time. With Luton and Sheffield United, I don't think any of us are, are that surprised. They, Sheffield United are a, a well-organised team. <laughs> well, they, they didn't seem very well-organised today uh, in, the, in the game against Newcastle, but, but they were well-organised, but they lacked quality. And they started this season, Sheffield United, with a worse squad than they ended it in the Championship because they'd lost various low knees and whatnot. Uh, and, and Luton, it was always going to be tough. It always. As it stands, they are the bottom three, the three promoted sides, but all on one point. Two points adrift of Bournemouth in 17th place. Luton, though, and Burnley do have that game in hand against each other. Mm. So were one of them to win that, then uh, it could be Bournemouth. Well, it would be Bournemouth who are in the, the bottom three. Burnley have Salford in the Carabao Cup midweek. As for Man United, they, uh, the cup holders, uh, will be up against Crystal Palace on Tuesday at Old Trafford and then again on Saturday. Funny how that happens mm. sometimes. Uh, Palace, who enjoyed a nil-nil draw with Fulham at the weekend. So is that only the second nil-nil of the season? It is. Yeah, because it was on course to break the record until Bournemouth-Chelsea right. meant the record was only equaled. Mm. So, yeah, it must be. Mm. All right. And that's your Premier League match day six. Unless there's anything else we've forgotten, Adrian. Don't think we've talked about Brighton. No. Well, we kind of gonna, did in I, passing. I was going to mention Brighton. As right. Well. well, let's mention them now. And, and listen, this, this game, as you're probably painfully aware, was not available for, for UK viewers. It was one of the three games that took place and weren't televised while the North London derby was, was going on. So... Uh, have you have you seen yeah. enough to have an opinion of it? Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen the highlights of the game. Um, it finally caught up with them, with the goalkeeper for Bruggen, with, with this luring everybody onto you before um, playing the risky pass. Verbruggen, the, the goalkeeper for Brighton, uh, gave the ball to Solanke and he, he chipped in. The, the other sort of noteworthy 
point to make is, is Mitoma came off the bench at half-time and scored after 16 seconds, which 16 is quite seconds. some going uh, as, a, as an introduction off the bench. Uh, Deserbi afterwards, I know it's described uh, this as the worst performance of his time there. Which, really? Which, yeah, which seems odd given that they that they won 3-1. Sticking the knife in a bit to your opponent. Yeah, it's <laughs> a little bit, isn't it? It's a little bit. Thanks, mate. But, but, but Brighton, look, they just go on in terms of the goal scoring, don't they? It's, it's remarkable given that they were this team that played great stuff but never scored and now they've scored in 22 successive games, Brighton. Right. It's, it, it, it is fantastic. And a slow start for them in this game, perhaps understandable given that Thursday night they were playing in the uh, Europa League and, and uh, of course, that didn't work out too well for them. Their historic first European fixture, they lost 3-2 at home to AEK. It's two stats about Brighton, James. Mm -hmm. The first is why they're so entertaining, which is because every league game they've played so far this season has either been 3-1 or 4-1, either for them or against them. (laughs) Uh, And the other is that they are very good because they've just become the first non-Big Six team since 2006 to win five of their first six league games in a season. Uh, to give you a perspective of how long ago that was, it was Charlton that did it in 2006. Wow. And interesting about Brighton, they've now played six games. Um, Steele, Jason Steele, the goalkeeper's played three of them, and Verbruggen's played the other three. So in Because in, obviously we've spoken about Arsenal and him talking about rotating goalkeepers, which right. has got a lot of attention, and mm. he hasn't done that because Raya has played three games in a row now, but Brighton do seem to be rotating their goalkeepers. Because Steele played against United, and they won that game 3-1, which is quite interesting. And then, obviously, he made that error, as Adrian says. But, yeah, I don't think that's going to you know, affect how they play. That's what they want to do. They want to lure teams onto them, and it's, it's going to backfire from time to time. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, if they... I'd just be really interested to see if they do continue to rotate their goalkeepers. You score three or four every game. It doesn't matter who's in goal, yeah. does it, really? <laughs> Give Lamptey a go. <laughs> Chelsea for them in the League Cup midweek, and then Villa in the League away on Saturday as they defend their top three spot. Remarkable. Uh, That's it for today's Totally Football Show. We return with Rafa, Jules, James and Alvaro for our European Roundup on Tuesday. And then, of course, on Thursday, there'll be a big League Cup Roundup and look ahead to the weekend and all that sort of thing. For now, many, many thanks to Charlie Eccleshare, Adrian Clark, Daniel Storey and producer Charlie uh, for putting this all together. And you, listener, for being with us today. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.